All right, everyone, welcome back. This is Ryan Selkis, and you're listening to Masari's Unqualified Opinions, where each week I interview crypto's top builders, investors, and personalities to discuss the key trends in the industry. You can discover more about Masari at masari.io. But for now, let's get right into the episode. It's going to be a good one. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Voyager. Trading cryptocurrency can be tough. I'm not just talking about making smart crypto investments. I'm talking about simply finding the right places to trade. Whether it's a lack of liquidity on key trading pairs, the risk of having your account shut down or coins compromised, or just feeling like a second-class citizen versus the exchange's accredited clients, the deck can feel stacked against you and other retail investors. That's why I'm excited to tell you about a brand new trading platform that just launched called Voyager. Voyager is a fast, 100% commission-free trading app, no bullshit, that helps you trade over 20 cryptos. Best part, Voyager is a licensed crypto broker, so you don't have to worry about your account getting terminated or losing access to coins you want to trade. Their new iOS app is crazy fast and routes your trades to a network of exchanges so you can get unmatched access to the crypto market and a better price on your trades without having to create multiple exchange accounts and take on that burden yourself. So check it out today. Sign up at investvoyager.com slash Masari to earn $25 worth of free Bitcoin when you download the Voyager iOS app and register. This podcast is presented by BlockWorks Group, one of the top blockchain events and media production companies I've worked with. For exclusive content and events that could help you with insight into the crypto and blockchain space, check them out at blockworksgroup.io and you will not be disappointed. All right, everyone. Welcome back to Masari's Unqualified Opinions. It's been a couple of weeks, but we've got a monster lineup of interviews coming up. Uh, I'm very excited about today's to kick things off with Ryan Sean Adams, who's the creator of Bankless. Uh, one thing that we've been harping on quite a bit more recently is the lack of user education and onboarding uh, for uh, for some of these DeFi applications in particular. And Ryan has created Bankless, which is a education tool platform potentially, um, but a series of newsletters that encourages new users to actually roll up their sleeves and start playing around with some of these applications. Um, one of the top marketers, you could argue, uh, in the ETH community, at least as nominated by, by Amin uh, Soleimani from, uh, from, from SpankChain, when they were thinking about how to incentivize uh, better marketing uh, for the Ethereum ecosystem. Uh, and I, I actually sort of agree with that um, because it, it is about onboarding user education and, and getting people to actually figure out that these aren't totally foreign objects uh, and, and, and might not be as scary as, as look at first appearance. So um, before we do that, uh, I want to thank Voyager, uh, our sponsor for this podcast, uh, and, uh, and, and uh, we will uh, get going. So. Um, and by the way, that that's going to get cleaned up for the the live or the um, the podcast, and, and this whole part will be deleted. So, for our live viewers, uh, you're seeing how the sausage gets made for the podcast listeners. You're going to hear this. All right. So, so Ryan, why don't we um, why don't we get started? And uh, and and you know, I'd love to just learn a little bit more about your background, uh, how you got down the rabbit hole, how you how you got to the point where um, you're studying. Uh, DeFi applications and, and really, you know, creating a masterclass of sorts for how users can can come up to speed on the fast-moving world that is 
the money Lego environment as, as you and others are, 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 are starting to refer to this ecosystem. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Ryan. So I, I guess you know my story isn't isn't certainly um, anything special. I'd say my background is tech entrepreneurship. Um, I was part of a uh, healthcare tech uh, startup, sold that company, was working in um, in kind of the, the corporate industry for a while in healthcare. Uh, in 2013, I, I sort of stumbled across Bitcoin. Um, super interesting way, the idea of, of peer-to-peer money, the idea of a, a store of value apart from uh, central bank banks really fascinated me. Um, and then when Ethereum came on the scene in 2016, the idea of uh, programmable money, so the idea of, of attaching if-then statements uh, in, as you know, to money and creating an entire money uh, system with these protocols on top of it, um, that just sealed the deal. I knew I had to jump into crypto. So I did that in 2017. Um, I put some capital together with a couple of uh, small um, private investors, and I started Mythos, which is a capital holding company. Um, and the thesis there is investing in uh, these new monetary systems, essentially. Um, we don't uh, trade. We kind of buy and hold for the long term. So we're not an LP or hedge fund. We don't have kind of those, those quarterly obligations. Um, and right now, our work is pretty simple because uh, we basically believe there are, there are two big candidates for money, uh, and that is uh, Bitcoin and ETH, and that's it. So it's not a lot we have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I decided to do um, just a, a couple of weeks ago is actually um, start kind of a, an educational program um, for folks that want to learn about the open finance ecosystem. Um, I think we're in a, in, a, in a position, this might sound ludicrous, but I, I uh, wholeheartedly believe this, um, that we can onboard a billion people to crypto finance uh, in the coming years, in the coming maybe decades. Uh, in order to do that, we need to educate people. We, we don't want them coming in on uh, XRP, you know, pipe dreams and, um, you know, Tron marketing hype. Uh, you know, so I, I wanted to provide some solid education for people who are just entering the space on uh, what is actual crypto money, what attributes they should be looking at. So that's the base layer. And then ultimately how to use these, these crypto banks, which are exchanges and other things, um, and, and money protocols in order to accomplish a few things. The things that, um, you know, every money system needs to accomplish, lending, borrowing, staking, uh, transacting, actually using the stuff as money, holding too, that's part of it. Um, so Bankless is really a program you know, set up to do that and delivered by, by a newsletter three times a week. And so um, you have uh, just kicked this off a few weeks ago. You, you have the, the the money cube, right? Is that, is that what you call it? So, so it, yeah. you, I think you just touched on it with, with kind of the evolution uh, that people need to go through. But um, first step is just acquiring uh, these assets, uh, and then you know everything else is is you know kind of adding layers of complexity on that. So, um, how do you think about the um, the the foundational behaviors, uh, and and how much time it, it should take to get people fully down the rabbit hole in, in a you know perfect world? Because um, it, it's hard for me to, to kind of go back and think about what it would be like relearning some of this because yes. um, there just weren't as many tools available, number one. And number two, um, it, things moved a lot slower back in you know, 2013, right? So, um, so how, 
I, I guess if this is successful, how fast could you get people from like zero to 100? Or, or, or what's the goal in terms of trajectory? So um, I think the goal in terms of trajectory is uh, constant leveling up. Um, that, that's what I would call it. And so we've all, if you've been in this, you've been in this space for a long time, um, we've all gone down that path where we have to kind of continually level up. And you know, the, the program is really uh, set up to do that, um, to provide more information every single week so that every single week um, the subscribers are, um, are leveling up, you know? And you, you can start from basically nothing, not knowing about crypto, and just kind of gradually pick up more as you go along. Um, my goal in this, though, is really to remove the distractions and uh, get rid of all of the noise because there's always uh, a ton of noise. Even in the we're in the bear market, so it's less noisy than it was in you know 2017. Um, but there's still so much noise, and people don't know how to kind of filter through the noise. So you mentioned the uh, the money cube. It's um, it's really kind of a, I call it the bankless skill cube. And so it's a framework for how you level up and how you can think about these crypto money systems, um, starting from like you know my parents who uh, know nothing about it and are like just getting into it. And the idea is there's there's a, a money layer at the bottom. So um, the thing you absolutely have to get ready is uh, you have to um, participate in the system by um, buying the right crypto monies, right? And so when I think of crypto money, it's things like Bitcoin, it's things like uh, Ether. I know that's uh, controversial, but um, you know, th those are the commodity monies that essentially back the reserve asset value of this entire space. It's also things like, like stable coins. And once you sort of get that money layer, then you can kind of move up the stack. Um, the next layer in the stack is uh, crypto banks. Um, those are exchanges, those are institutions um, like uh, Binance and Coinbase and uh, BlockFi. Uh, and then there are these money protocols, uh, what people uh, refer to as, as DeFi. But these are basically um, banks only that operate as protocols. Uh, so that's the next layer of the stack. You've got money and then you've got the crypto banks and you've got the money protocols. In between, you need to learn a little bit about wallets and security and, and storage and that sort of thing. But then once you have that base, it enables you to start doing stuff with crypto money. Um, it, we've been obsessed with hold uh, for a long time and hold is awesome. Uh, and that's kind of the, the base of this whole system. You have to hold the right crypto money. So I fully support hold, but that's only one of the verbs uh, in order to create a money system. Um, if we don't get beyond hold in crypto, we're just going to be, you know, a bunch of gold bugs, uh, and a, you know, that's not at least the, the vision I think uh, crypto is moving towards this whole open finance uh, system. So the other verbs are borrowing, uh, are lending, are staking, are transacting, are earning, are actually getting paid in this stuff. Um, and once you get the money layer down, and once you get sort of the the, the banking and protocol layer down, then you can start to do these verbs. And slowly over time, what I think is going to happen, if we're all right about this crypto uh, you know, experiment, is um, people are going to shift their net worth from the existing banking systems over to the, the crypto money systems. Uh, you know, one day they'll, they'll wake up and realize, wow, I've got more you know, net worth in Bitcoin and Ethereum than I have in Wells Fargo, right? Uh, another day they'll wake up and they'll be like, I don't even need my Wells Fargo account anymore. I've got uh, an ETH address. 
Um, that's kind of the vision we're working towards. And my goal is to, to help people level up at all of those layers with the Bankless program. You know, what What I, I like about it, and maybe you'll disagree with this, but I, I, I kind of think that you're really just trying to educate the first, you know, thousand, ten thousand, hundred thousand users um, to do this individually. And maybe at scale, people will behave like this. But I, I generally think um, you talked about the banks being the, the second level, right? First it's hold, then it's, then it's the banks. I, I, it's, it's interesting to hear you talk about the, the exchanges as if they're going to be the banks. I think it's really the wallets because all of the things that you're trying to teach users to do, I would assume will be automated by the wallets, right? So Coinbase will stake on your behalf and they'll take a cut. Coinbase will lend on your behalf and they'll take a cut. They will use your Bitcoin or, or Ether if you give them permission and you're getting interest and, and income on it um, to create stable ones, uh, right? And, 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 and so um, it's not just them, but, but I, would, I would think with potentially every single wallet and every single service provider that's building on top of that wallet infrastructure, that most of this should be abstracted away and this is more about finding the guinea pigs uh, that are, are going to take the early risks and help prove out the, the security models of, of some of these applications um, before it actually becomes automated at the, at the enterprise level and, and really gets rolled out to um, you know, millions of users. You know, if Coinbase was able to offer 5% interest to all of their holders, it's, it's a totally different game that, that you're playing. Um, if that interest is, is you know, coming from USDC or, or you know, stablecoin like DAI. Um, now that would obviously get compressed over time, but, um, but, but to me that feels like the whole ball game. If you can get people excited about a relatively safe way without doing their own custody of, um, of earning those type of returns. It, it, at what point does this stop becoming, you know, for individual users and and, and more um, almost co-marketing with some of the major wallets? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think you kind of uh, talked about well, and when you say wallets, so um, uh, when I think of a wallet, it's the uh, location where you have like where you place custody of your private keys, basically, right? Mm -hmm. And so you could do that on a ledger, and then you are essentially the bank. You retain custody of, uh, on, a, on a hardware wallet, but again, if you if you put it in a, a crypto bank like Coinbase, I guess you could call that a wallet. Um, you know, when they take centralized custody over it, I think of those as the crypto banks versus money protocols, where you sort of preserve your custody at some level. So, I guess to to address your question, I think if that vision uh, comes true, where Coinbase or like Binance or any of these crypto banks start providing these services of, of staking. Um, and uh, lending and interest, um, I don't think it gets us there to the full vision. Okay? I think that's 50% of the way to the vision. And I think that's probably the place where um, I love Bitcoin, I love Bitcoiners, but where I, where I probably have uh, the most difference with them. There are two banking institutions that we actually have to disrupt if we want a, a parallel money system. The first, and Bitcoin gets this right, is the central banks, right? We have to disrupt that system. But, but the second, and, and I, don't, I think Bitcoin falls short on this, uh, the, the second is the commercial banks, essentially. So these are all of the private banks that are currently centralized. 
And um, the, the limitation, I think, of, of Bitcoin in some of the design decisions uh, that it makes, not to scale its base chain, not to add programmability at the, at the base level, what it will lead to is possibly a disruption of the, the central banks, but the installment of a new class of crypto banks. Um, so the Binances and the Coinbases, etc., or even the JP Morgans, when they finally get into crypto, they start running the money system. And to me, that's 50% of the revolution. The other 50% of the revolution is we, we have no kings in the banking layer. We have protocols instead, and we disrupt that uh, layer as well. And that's what they open. For. That's the full open finance vision. That's what DeFi is doing. Um, we can we can trust protocols uh, for our money as we do with Bitcoin and Ether, but then we can also trust protocols with our lending as we might be able to do with, with Compound uh, and, and Maker. And that's the full vision to me. And I hope we achieve the full vision. That's my hope. That's the full bankless vision. But bankless is both of those layers. Bankless, from a central bank perspective, the people have their own self-sovereign uh, you know, store of value money. And then bankless, from a commercial private banking perspective, where we can actually do these verbs without having to rely on, on Binance and Bitfinex. That makes yeah. sense. It, it, it does. I, I, I do think that there are two totally separate concepts. I, the, the idea of bankless money, bankless commodity money, I, I don't think is controversial anymore. But when you start thinking about um, DeFi uh, applications, lending, staking, and, and, and other you know, more proactive activity outside of just holding, uh, and traditional, you know, commercial banking activity, it, it gets a little trickier because um, uh, a these aren't risk-free returns, right? You're getting compensated for the risk of, of you know building and, and and using some of these open finance protocols. Um, but b there's kind of systemic ecosystem risk um, if you can't cross the chasm and just get from. The insular community of holders is basically just, you know, playing with themselves, uh, yeah. and, 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 and many, many senses of the phrase. And then, um, and then, you know, kind of users that actually um, would like to put some risk capital into the system in dollars or RMB or yen, uh, and yeah. they just want to, they just want to find yield, right? So they're they're happy taking the ecosystem risk, but they're not crypto folks specifically. Um, and it seems, you know, what, what, what I got excited about with Bankless is it seems like uh, at least the first step in building a bridge to those people. I, I think the primary users uh, of, a, um, of a program like this are probably going to be crypto, like actually hardcore crypto people that just want to follow some type of rubric because there's information overloaded and it's overwhelming. So there's value to curation. But the, the level yeah. up from that is probably... Um, individual users that are, are you know more risk tolerant that just want to find other avenues for yield. I yeah, I to, I totally agree. So the, the the intent of Bankless is to start onboarding that next level of users. Um, if someone were to ask me, you know, uh, six months ago or a year ago, um, you know, how how do I get into crypto? I'm, I'm new, right? The, the answer is easy. You go, you open a Coinbase account, right, and you start buying some crypto money. Right? You, start, you avoid all the trash, but start buying some real crypto assets. And that's how you start. Just keep it on Coinbase, you know, dollar cost average in, add a little each paycheck, that's easy. 
Um, the exciting thing with open finance is we're actually starting to move beyond that uh, with the, the advent of some of these new crypto wallets. Um, in one of my editions last week, I talked about um, the Argent wallet, for instance. Um, this is the first like wallet I've seen, and it's a smart contract wallet uh, based on Ethereum that um, like my eight-year-old can use, right? Um, so you just fire it up. Um, it doesn't require you know storing a seed phrase of any kind. Um, you know you can you can just put some crypto in it. And you can start using protocols, you know, no gas, you don't even have to know the concept. You can start using maker, you can start using compound, you can start, you know, investing your crypto and lending it out in some of these applications. So I think um, people would be surprised how far uh, open finance has progressed in the last, like, call it six to 12 months during this bear market when everybody's just paying attention to the price. Um, some of these tools are starting to get mainstream ready. And that's what's exciting for me about Bankless is I can actually like recommend a um, you know non-custodial uh, you know, crypto wallet that my eight-year-old can use. Uh, that starts to indicate to me that we're we're ready to start onboarding the, the next tranche of, of users here, and it's going to be pretty exciting, I think, in the months to come. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Voyager. Trading cryptocurrency can be tough. I'm not just talking about making smart crypto investments. I'm talking about simply finding the right places to trade. Whether it's a lack of liquidity on key trading pairs, the risk of having your account shut down or coins compromised, or just feeling like a second-class citizen versus the exchange's accredited clients, the deck can feel stacked against you and other retail investors. That's why I'm excited to tell you about a brand new trading platform that just launched called Voyager. Voyager is a fast, 100% commission-free trading app, no bullshit, that helps you trade over 20 cryptos. The best part, Voyager is a licensed crypto broker, so you don't have to worry about your account getting terminated or losing access to coins you want to trade. Their new iOS app is crazy fast and routes your trades to a network of exchanges so you can get unmatched access to the crypto market and a better price on your trades without having to create multiple exchange accounts and take on that burden yourself. So check it out today. Sign up at investvoyager.com slash Masari to earn $25 worth of free Bitcoin when you download the Voyager iOS app and register. So let's talk a little bit about the um, the, the Bitcoin versus ETH um, battles. I think um, you know, for better and for worse, you've inserted yourselves as one of the uh, one of the the few uh, ETH is money warriors. Uh, Bitcoin has has uh, a global army uh, that is intolerant, um, and and that's kind of a good thing. And uh, you and, and several others have gotten more vocal recently about you know ether as money and kind of the, the importance to, to hammer home that narrative. Um, there's there's two topics of conversation here. One is what happens when you can actually um, use DeFi applications with Bitcoin, and then there's a second conversation of what actually happens with Ethereum. Uh, as all of these other smart contract platforms come live in the next 12 to 18 months, right? Because there are a lot that are, are going to be coming to market. Um, so why don't we start, um, I think, probably Bitcoin versus Ethereum. We should just position that as, as kind of the final boss that we, we talked about in this conversation. So let, let's talk about just um, Ethereum and the smart contract platform competition that it has. 
Um, and whether maybe not any individual platform threatens Ether's you know, reserve currency narrative, um, but if there's a cumulative impact that uh, is just going to be you know, relentless um, and, and net negative for Ethereum over the course of the next year to two uh, as these platforms come live and, and you start to actually see the competition ramp up. Yeah, can I just say, so uh, I am not worried at all about this new crop of ETH killers. Um, and I know that's like, um, that's kind of counter-narrative and, and contrarian. You know, people will say what you just said, it's like all of these, these smart contract platforms that, that promise higher volume and scalability uh, and all sorts of bells and whistles. So I think the whole uh, notion well, well, of I, smart- I do want to, I do want to chime. It's not just scalability and bells and whistles. It's the combination of that and interoperable blockchains, which is something very new. Yeah. So, so the, the, fri- the, fri- the friction of moving from chain to chain, I think, is uh, an order of magnitude less than maybe it was even a couple of years ago. Yeah. So, I, you know, um, I think there's still a ton of friction for moving from chain to chain, right? So I'm, you know, actually run validators in the Cosmos ecosystem, right? Um, they're still working on some chain interoperability. I'm watching that space closely. Um, but but the whole narrative of um, smart contract, the smart contract wars, I think is a little distracting. Um, I think that the war is and always has been the money system wars, right? And so it's it's about um, you know, creating an entirely new open finance system. And at the base of that money system, there has to be a crypto native uh, store of value. There has to be a crypto native reserve asset, right? So you can, in, if you don't have a crypto native reserve asset that's backed by uh, a dedicated group in holder of holders that basically believe in the, the meme of money, um, what you have to do is you have to uh, import your store value asset from another chain, right? Um, or, and uh, that impacts your, your security. So um, all of these smart contract platforms are based on the, like their security is derived from the, the base value of the reserve asset that, that backs their system. And so in order to, to maximize that security, in order to provide a you know, programmable store of value, like money Lego that, um, open finance applications can use, your, your base asset has to be a store of value. So the big question to me, when I look at and I survey the other smart contract platforms and Ethereum pillars is, which of these are, are positioning themselves uh, and their, their, their base asset to accrue a monetary premium? Um, and to me, I haven't seen evidence that any of them really are. There, there are a few up and, up and coming potentials but doing things like um, having a uh, private pre-sale with a bunch of VCs, it, you know, and, and likely being designated as security, and then moving from a security to evolving to you know a utility, um, that's not helpful on the path to becoming a, a reserve, you know, commodity money, uh, you know, base layer. So I'm not seeing a lot of competition um, actually in the space, even though there's there's this kind of hubbub about the smart contract wars. You know, I, I'd agree with that um, for for a couple of reasons, but then there's an important caveat. So, so you know, maybe uh, I, what, I, what I definitely agree with is you probably need a base layer asset that has a, a monetary premium um, 
to secure some of these other networks. Um, I also think that the reason that is true for Ethereum isn't necessarily that it was early, but you know, quite frankly, it's probably only true for Bitcoin and Ethereum because they both have, I think, a pretty compelling origin story and, and you know, a bit of mysticism about their creators. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously Satoshi, but but you know, Lord Vitalik has become a meme, right? Be, because he is um, just you know one of the, the wonderkins of 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 you know our generation. Uh, or at least is considered, you know, to be one by, by you know, so many within the Ethereum community and and, and um, smart contract community in general, uh, and because it was the first token sale, there there is a bit of of mysticism, um, just because of the outsized returns and everything that has been you know built around it. So you, you know, call it a celebrity, whatever. But but I think it was um, a compelling enough origin story that um, it, it it kind of fits that bill of. of you know, what you need for, for any sound money. The others are just very corporate, right? No matter who you're talking about, even the, the ones that have been in early, because they raised from private investors, um, because they have boards of directors, it um, it just feels very different, right? Um, from, from a monetary perspective. Um, now, the, the caveat to that is a lot of people are gonna buy the other tokens when they become liquid. Right? A lot of people are going to buy Telegram's token. A lot of people are going to buy Polkadot's token. Maybe Definity if they ever launch. Um, and and you know all these other hundred, couple hundred million dollar um, protocol tokens that, that are going to get liquidity. And it's not so much that their market cap is going to reach Ether anytime soon, but the cumulative buying pressure on the market is going to sop up some demand for Ether. I think, and, and you know, other things equal. So, um, if if that happens, what does that mean for demand for ether versus demand for Bitcoin as it becomes easier to use Bitcoin as a reserve for ether? Because I could see a scenario where the, the course of the next couple of years, it's it's death by a thousand cuts for Ethereum. Uh, you start to see Bitcoin, you know, rally because there's a new macro group of users that get onboarded into the industry. Ethereum is stagnant because of all this other selling pressure and competition from all the other platforms coming live. And at the same time, there are solutions that make it easier to use Bitcoin for smart contracts, right? And so now what happens to, to Ether's monetary premium? Do people still believe that narrative or do they become disillusioned? And, and ultimately fall off because actually I can just use the real commodity money, which is which is Bitcoin. Um, you don't hear people talking about the flipping anymore, right? Um, maybe that narrative will come back, but I, I have not heard that term in quite a while. So it, it, it at least seems like temporarily some some you know hardcore Ethereans have been chastened by the bear market. Um, my question is, does that narrative ever come back, um, or or does it continue to kind of bleed? And, and, and get attacked from both angles, one on the interoperability side, one from just the pressure of these competing platforms. Yeah, so uh, nothing I say is ever investment advice. Um, but for, for all of the narratives, everything you just said makes, um, you know, given kind of what I see, what Ether and Ethereum is actually doing, this makes it an incredible buying opportunity from my perspective. Um, right now, the, the kind of the sentiment in the market is um, Bitcoin is the only money, right? We've got you know seventy percent uh, plus 
Bitcoin dominance index. Um, you know, Ether is is going to be killed by all of these uh, Ethereum killers. Um, but when you look at like what's going on with these money legos, what's going on with with Maker and Compound and this entire system that's developing around uh, Ether and Ethereum and using Ether as a um, as collateral backing, essentially actually using Ether as money. Every time you spend Dai, you're using ETH as money because ETH backs Dai. Dai is essentially a you know a promissory note. It's debt for Ether, right? Um, you know, like I, I just see uh, Ethereum as like miles ahead of everything else, and I see more. I, I see less actual dominance and more meme dominance, if that makes sense, in the um, in, in the Bitcoin space. So I, I think um, Ether right now is a dark horse because no one's thinking of it as a um, an actual money. Uh, everyone's thinking that ETH will be killed by some other killer. Uh, no one's thinking that ETH 2.0 will actually ship, um, and it's a really cool opportunity right now. And so I'm just in the trenches, like actually uh, trying to help people use the stuff. Um, you know, with all of the other smart contract platforms that you mentioned, the, the definities of the world when they come online, people are going to speculate on them. They always do. You know, they're they're going to have days where they rise, you know, 30, 40 percent, and days where they collapse, you know, the the, the same percentage. Um, but can they actually use it? Can, can they actually take some of that, you know, those Infinity coins and, and put them in a, in a smart contract and lend against that and, and mint a, a stable coin that's actually being used in the real world and that's completely trustless? Um, no. But if I start to see signs of, of those types of things happening, if I start to see signs of, you know, beyond speculation of the, you know, the reserve asset of these smart contract platforms actually being used as money, as even Ether was used as a reserve asset in the ICO boom, you know, then that starts to change my thesis a little bit. But yeah, in the end, I don't think uh, Bitcoin is kind of the, the only thing we've created in this whole open finance money system. And I think um, ETH has a role to play. It's just, you know, we're in the bare doldrums and people are underestimating it right now. I think there's, uh, I think there's some merit to that. Um, I, you know, I, I, I should, Qualify again that I I I, I think it's a um, it's not a cute uh, when when I when I talk about ETH losing its reserve status or, or its monetary premium, it's not just because there's all these risks because you would argue well yes they're priced in. I think my point is more that the competition from many of these other platforms um, keeps Ethereum. Uh, it, and its, its growth as a monetary asset in check for the medium term. And if that happens, while you see a rally in something like Bitcoin, then it's a vicious cycle where people are gonna want less ETH as a monetary unit and more Bitcoin, and then Bitcoin will actually become a reserve for even some of the smart contract applications. It, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a nuance, but I do think it's an important caveat because it's not just this amalgamation of risks that oh it's it's totally oversold everybody's overhyping all these things it, it's kind of like the one-two punch right you can yeah. you can withstand the competition from bitcoin because you've got all this developer interest and and the money lego narrative uh you can withstand the the sell side pressure um or all of the the buying interest that's going to come from the um the cumulative uh, assets that are being released from these new platforms 
but if one uh, does that kind of accelerate the the the, the force uh, or increase the force of, of like the the right cross that comes behind the jab, you know? So I, I think I think that's um, uh, that's what just from a simple supply and demand in terms of money flow standpoint uh, would, would still be concerning for me. Um, but you could argue that's priced in, uh, and maybe that's where the difference is. I mean, I feel like that what what you just articulated is what's played out over the past, you know, probably eighteen months. It's it's basically that. And the question is, I mean, you, you could still be right in some you know time horizon. I you know I, I totally I, I would totally sign off on that. That you know it might be it might continue to be the case in the short run. It might even continue to be the case in the medium run. But um, when we're talking about reserve asset store of value commodities, um, once you get outside of Bitcoin and once you get outside of ETH, my question, I guess, on that thesis would be, where else do you go? Are you gonna like? Are you seriously gonna put your money in XRP? Are you gonna put it in Tron? Like, are you gonna like? It, it, it's so clear to me if you look at like uh, go to go to Masari, you know, go to on-chain um, uh, data FX, right? Look at the top 100 points. Look at the top 15 points. There, there's nothing in there that is uh, competing as a commodity store of value that has any reasonable like liquidity or any reasonable path to actually increasing that liquidity and becoming money. So if they're not doing it in Bitcoin and ETH, you know, I don't know where they'd put it. In, you know, um, I, I'd be scared that they'd put it in, in a place that's, um, <laughs> that's, that's not a good long-term store of value. Uh, so maybe as, uh, as one final question, we'll do a speed round uh, in terms of the platforms that are going to come online in the next 12 to 18 months and, and, and relatively speaking, where you assess uh, the threat level. Um, so let's think about maybe the top five. So I would, I would put um, in no order, maybe you can rank order them, I'll, I'll name them, uh, Polkadot, Definity, Telegram, Filecoin, and the fact that I'm blanking on a fifth. Maybe you can fill in the fifth, and then and then rank order the five. What what what, yeah, what else? Maybe what Cosmos. Else? Let's throw Cosmos. Let's throw in Cosmos there, right? in there because yeah, they're, 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 they're yeah. Okay, so so rank order those in terms of the um, the value that might bleed into some of these competitive platforms. I mean, I think so. I think that so in the short run, I think value could bleed into all of those platforms, right? From Bitcoin, from ETH, uh, you know, whatever so-called bubble season, um, you know, could, could occur. Um, so, like, but that would be all speculative value. If you're asking which of those platforms do I actually think is a medium to long-term ETH competitor, right? Um, so let's take Polkadot. Uh, challenge with Polkadot is it's a permission setup, right? You have to you have to stake dots to actually kind of earn the right to start a chain, right? I mean, it's permission, it's, it's got on-chain governance. Um, you, you know, um, it, it doesn't have kind of the, the monetary policy and the tested monetary policy that Bitcoin does, or even that, that Ether does. I think it'll have a hard time graduating from, you know, dots becoming money. In fact, they're not even marketing uh, dots as money in any way, shape, or form. It's a pure utility coin. And I do think that the founder, kind of Gavin, um, believes that. So I don't think that's a, a threat. Um, Definity, my question there is like, will it ever ship? Um, you know, we'll believe that when I see it, but they're going in kind of the, the cloud 
we're the the decentralized AWS, right? It's again not not um, even catching themselves as a as a money system. Um, Cosmos atoms are not trying to be money, right? Um, they're they're trying to be basically tokenized ASICs. That's what they're doing. They're going to import their store of value from other blockchains. So they're going to put uh, Bitcoin on. Uh, Cosmos, that's going to be their store of value, but atoms are not competitive with, with ETH as a money. Now, maybe Bitcoin plus Cosmos is competitive as a money system with, with um, Ethereum, um, and we'll have to see how that plays out. Filecoin, completely different space, right? I mean, it's that that's um, that's more of a you know commodity for, for storage. It's not actually trying to become a commodity uh, money uh, in any sense. So I don't view that it, as it, it is if Ethereum kind of forfeits the whole Web3 thesis, right? And just focuses on financial applications. So um, at, at some level, I kind of hope um, some aspects of the Web3 thesis, the decentralized internet thesis, are forfeited, right? Um, I would I, agree. You know, <laughs> I've never really, that's not why I got into Bitcoin. It's not why I got into Ethereum. Uh, it was more for programmable money and self-sovereign money. Um, but even so, I mean, you know, Filecoin is basically IPFS, um, right? You know, economically incentivized IPFS. And that's, um, a, you know, a, a file storage layer. Um, and it's more complementary to what Ethereum is doing in the Web3 space than competitive, mm-hmm. in my view. Well, uh, a lot of this is just going to have to play out, and I'm sure in six months there will be things that we didn't think of that will crop up as either risks or, or, or big, massive new opportunities. Um, but in the meantime, uh, people can go to substackbankless.com uh, and, uh, and, and sign up for the newsletter. It's been great so far, and, uh, and, and definitely excited to, uh, to continue reading and following along. Any other parting words of wisdom? No, that's that's great. Uh, yeah, so it's bankless.substack.com, and uh, thanks a lot, Ryan. It's been really fun. Thank you. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Unqualified Opinions go live weekdays at noon Eastern time. You can follow me in the meantime on Twitter at Two Bit Idiot. If you want to continue the conversation or troll me, otherwise, I'll see you next week.